to Ezekiel in chapter 38. And we'll just read chapter 38 and not 38 and 39, since 39 is a bit of a reiteration of 38. And we'll get from that what we need. But Ezekiel in chapter 38. Ezekiel 38 and verse 1. This is the word of God. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. And I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, as a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Tagama from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. Be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be mustered. In the latter days you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people are gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance, coming on like a storm. It will be like a cloud covering the land and you and all your hordes and many people with you. Thus says the Lord God. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates to seize spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell at the center of the earth, Sheba and Didan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, Have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? Will you come from your place out of the othermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when you, when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? But on that day, the day of, that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger, for in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence." And the mountains shall be thrown down, and the cliff shall fall, and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential range and hailstorms, fire and sulfur. So I will show my, my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord." Okay, 
Here we go. Now, there's an enemy. An enemy of the people of God. Entitled Gog of Magog. A prince. And he gathers together, it seems, all the nations. He comes from afar in the uppermost parts of the north, where all the enemies of Israel would come. But he seems to gather this great horde, this great cloud, this great army with him to come. And it comes this time in the latter days, he says, or in the distant future. And so we have this picture in the distant future of this great army amassing to come against the people of God. That's the picture here. And not only that, we see that in the midst of this still, uh, God is sovereign. Notice in verse... uh, Verse 4, God says, I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws and I will bring you out and all your army. It's God who's, who's really sovereign over all of this. Now, they don't know it, Gog and his buddies, but God is sovereign in some sense over this. In fact, they think it comes from their own mind. Look in verse 10. It says, Thus says the Lord God on that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. You see, Gog and all these army buddies of his, all these nations, all these peoples, this great host, it seems like this, this, this universal world gathering against the people of God, will think it's their thoughts. Thoughts will come into their mind. But yet God says, no, I'm really behind all of this. And as they come against the people of God, they're not victorious. In fact, God brings a great earthquake and, and, and all these great images of destruction, hailstorms and a torrential rain and fire and sulfur down upon them. And then everyone stops and takes notice that he really is the Lord. What do we do with that? Because you see, we haven't yet experienced, they didn't experience by the time of the end of the Old Testament, and we haven't experienced yet anything like that. Oh, there were wars still to come, and there were battles still to be fought, even, then, even after the days of Ezekiel, before the coming of Christ. There were, there, were, there were battles to be fought after the coming of Christ. We, in our own time, have experienced various wars, but nothing like this. Nothing where the end of which is this great cataclysmic event where everyone takes notice that, ah, that's God. That's why you see as we've been reading through Ezekiel, especially in the last couple of weeks, I've been introducing to you this notion, this concept of progressive revelation that the prophets would see off in a distance that which is to come and yet we wouldn't see its fulfillment immediately. It was certainly true in the coming of Jesus where the prophets saw the Messiah coming, but that was some generations away and yet they saw it in some fashion. In fact, even before that, everything that leads up, of course, and and all the Old Testament worship and the ceremonies was a shadow of Christ who is to come. And so all of that was looking forward. And and as this history of our redemption, another expression we've been using, comes into play, then we find we know more in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, than we knew before. We know more in the epistles than we knew before. We know more as this revelation comes complete in the scripture. In fact, as we've been reading through Ezekiel and then seeing how this revelation progresses, we've come to realize that that the people of God, as we enter into the New Testament, are not only those believing Israelites, but also believing Gentiles. And we see how it is that that, that the gospel was preached even to Abraham his offspring, 
being those who would believe, he being Abraham, the father of us all, both the circumcised to believe and the uncircumcised to believe, so much so that, that the church could be called, in Galatians 6, the Israel of God. And so we see then that, that these many descendants, these, these many ones, with the promise to Abraham, are all those who believe, both Jew and Gentile. We, we come to understand that, the people of God being Jew and Gentile, all who come to God by faith. So we have to ask the question, all right, when is this going to happen? Well, turn to Revelation and chapter 20. And verse 1. And I warn you, You're going to have to hang with me. You're going to have to think with me. We're treading upon difficult ground. I will try to explain it as well as I can from even a variety of views. All right? So you're going to need to listen and hang on to this. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding his hand in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We meet this battle, Gog and Magog, at the very end. Now, it's at the end of this thousand-year reign of Jesus. Now, as I suspect you know, if you just have an introduction to the book of Revelation in your New Testament, but I suspect you know, not everybody agrees as to what this thousand years is, but everybody agrees that the end of this thousand years will be this battle of Gog and Magog. Now, there's one view which is called a pre-millennial view. Pre meaning before, millennial or millennium being this thousand-year reign. And this expression, pre-millennial, means that there are those who believe that Jesus 
will return to the earth before, pre, this thousand year millennial time. Okay? Before, not after. Before. Now, as you might suspect, this view gets complicated because there's at least two views about that. More than two, but just two main ones. The historic... You getting all this? The his, this is important. The historic premillennial view... See, some of you hold these views, you just don't know what they're called. Uh, so I'll give you a name for that so you know what you are after this time. Uh, so then you can pick fights with those who aren't. That's really important, too. Um, now... The historic, meaning the oldest of the premillennial views, the historic premillennial view goes something, and I say something because you'll find a range of views here, but something like this, and that is that prior to this thousand-year reign, there is a great tribulation that comes on the earth, which includes the rising of the Antichrist and ends with the Battle of Armageddon, after which Jesus returns... And, 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 and rules and reigns over the earth. During that thousand-year period of time, Satan is bound so that he can't deceive the nations. Revelation 20. At the end of this, so it's a time of relative peace, it appears. Though we don't have a lot of good information from the scripture about that. Time of relative peace. At the end of this thousand-year reign, then Satan is released. And when he's released, then you see, he's able then to, to deceive the nations, meaning get them to think that they could all come together against the people of God. And then there's this great final battle, this battle of Gog and Magog, that ends with God coming in fire and sulfur and all that kind of stuff. And after that, the judgment. All right? That's the historic premillennial view. How? There's a newer premillennial view that came on the scenes in the mid-19th mid, yeah, century. It goes by a variety of names. It goes by, if you're really technical, and I know you are, a dispensational premillennial view or a pre-tribulation rapture premillennial view. Now that view goes, again, something like this, because you could find, depending on who you read, uh, various views. That before the tribulation, the church believers uh, are raptured up to be with Christ, taken to heaven with him for a seven-year period of time during which there's a seven-year tribulation on the earth. Now, this isn't my view, but I really hope I'm wrong. Because <laughs> I really hope that's the way it goes. I don't, I don't see any biblical warrant for this at all, though it's a popular view in America. It's great on bumper stickers and sells a lot of novels. But... It's not the view I hold, but, but I hope it's true because I really don't want to do anything called the Great Tribulation. Just in ha if I happen to be alive at that time and God gives me the option, I'm willing to cash out way before it starts. But I don't think that's what's going to happen. But, but that's this dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view. So then at the end of that, during that seven-year period of time, the Antichrist arises, ends in the Battle of Armageddon. Jesus returns with the saints, rules and reigns for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, Satan is released to deceive the nations, the nations come against the people of God, battle of Gog and Magog, and that's the end. Or at least another end, because it's, there was always already sort of one end before this. There's a third view called a post-tribulation, I mean post-millennial view, which means that Jesus returns 
after the millennium. Now this has two forks in it as well. Now there's the classic post-millennial view that, that nobody that I know holds anymore. It was held by some great people like Jonathan Edwards and others, but post-millennial view, meaning that in some sense the thousand-year reign is happening now, so much so, and Satan being bound now, so much so that things are going to actually get better and improve so that, so that a great conversion happens and then at the end of all that, when things are really good, Jesus returns. Now, nobody holds that view, so I won't go into it anymore. But there's another piece of this called the amillennial view, which means that the thousand-year reign is happening right now and that the structure of the book of Revelation is such that it gives us the impression that these expressions like thousand-year reign of Jesus are figurative because it's apocalyptic literature. It's literature of a revelation that's figurative in its language, in its speech. And so when you have apocalyptic literature, you need to understand things symbolically. And so the literal way of understanding the book of Revelation is to understand it in its form. And to say, all right, this is figurative language, so it's a figurative expression for a long period of time in which Jesus is ruling and reigning and Satan is bound. And you may say, well, how can they hold that view of Satan being bound when he seems to be alive and well? And the reason is because the text doesn't say he's bound in every way, but just in one particular way, as to be not allowed to deceive the nations into coming against, as a group, the people of God. And they get the expression of, G of Satan being bound from Jesus himself, who said that when he casts out Satan, the kingdom of God has come upon you, Matthew chapter 12, because how in the world could he come first without binding the strong man? And so we see the work of Christ, this view sees the work of Christ as binding Satan so that the nations can't be deceived. And so we see then that people are saved in this time and that until, given the okay, that is until he's released, he can't come upon the nations. And not only that, but if we read through, this view says, the book of Revelation, we see that it's not this nice linear account of history but it sort of cycles. Because there are a number of last great battles if you read through the book of Revelation. You'll find a last great battle in chapter 6. You'll find a last great battle in chapter 11. You'll find a last great battle in chapter 14. You'll find a last great battle in chapter 16. You'll find a last great battle in chapter 19. And you'll find a last great battle in chapter 20. And so the notion of this view is that what we see here are glimpses of life between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, all that end in this last great battle by a variety of names. And what we're to learn from this is that God is victorious because it's being written to a group of persecuted Christians and he says, look, this is what's happening. And not only that, this particular view then says, look at what's happening spiritually. For instance... Take a look at Revelation in chapter 16 and verse 12. You're going to have to hurry with me because I want to get you to Sunday school because that's important. But if you want to read a great book on the book of Revelation, if you're interested in, in understanding the book of Revelation, here's the best book I think I've found for you. It's called The Returning King. Not The Return of the King, that's a whole other deal. 
got orcs and things. No orcs in this one. Um, the Returning King by a professor by the name of Vern Poitras. Right? I'm sure you can get it at your local bookshop. Uh, but um, that, that really is, is, especially the chapter on structure, it's really good. It's very understandable, very helpful. If you struggle with understanding the book, that's, that'd be the book I'd recommend. It's new, The Guy's Alive. It was written in the year 2000. So it's not even an old dead guy book. It's, it's written in modern language. So it's a, it's a good, that'll be the most helpful one, I think, uh, for you. But uh, Revelation 16, verse 12, one of the last great battle scenes. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters was dried up to... Prepare for the way, uh, prepare the way for the kings from the east. East, not the north, but I don't think that's a problem. Verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. They weren't frogs, remember? This is symbolic language. This is an apocalyptic kind of thing. But the best thing John can say was they were like frogs, right? For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, and here's the reason, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Sounds a lot like Ezekiel, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like Gog and Magog and all the nations of the world being assembled. Sounds a lot like Satan being loosed so he can deceive the nations and say, let's go against the people of God. Now notice what's happening here. Because when we read in Ezekiel, yes, we know there's some spiritual stuff going on behind it, but it looks like a real nation, and it no doubt is, real nations coming together, real persecution, a real physical battle. But behind the scenes, we see this unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Now the dragon has been identified for us over and over in the book of Revelation as Satan. Notice in chapter 12, in verse 3, it says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, or crowns. Now again, figurative language. Horns, power. Crowns, rule. Heads, wisdom. All right? Not hard to figure out. Verse 9 tells us who this is. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil, and Satan, just in case you didn't catch it, and the deceiver of the whole world. So, so, th- so that's this image of Satan. Wisdom, power, crowns, authority, in some sense. Now notice in chapter 13, in verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems. Now who does that remind you of? What other figure has horns and crowns and heads? Satan. But a beast rising on the scene, ten horns, ten, seven heads, ten diadems on, on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon, so, gave his power and his throne and great authority. So can you see this transfer of power from Satan to this beast who comes out of the sea? A reality. This is an image of a reality. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. It didn't die. 
had what seemed like a mortal wound. But who do we know did have a mortal wound and come back from the dead to be marveled at? And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Great power. And not only that, that when they saw the beast, they worshipped the beast, but then they worshipped the dragon, they worshipped Satan because of what they knew of the beast. So the beast actually drew them right into the arms of Satan himself. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to other blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling that is those who dwell in heaven. And it was also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Conquer them in a political sense, not conquer them in a spiritual sense. When you conquer the saints spiritually. Verse four, or verse seven and a half. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Who does that sound like? The one who redeemed men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. So do you see what's happening? You've got this one who is behind it all, the planner, Satan himself. And he incarnates himself in the beast, this very one who has power and authority over people. So much power and authority over people, he can persecute the people of God. And to him is attracted all those who are not the elect, all those whose name hasn't been written in the book of life, the book of the Lamb that was slain, and hasn't been written there before the foundations of the earth. This very one that is worshipped. Beast number two. Beast number three is in verse 11, and he's called the false prophet in Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs and even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast it deceives those who dwell on the earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, uh, that is, the name of the beast or the name of its name, the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it's the number of a man and his number is 666. Last I heard it was Henry Kissinger. Now, second beast, false prophet, bears witness to the first beast, performs signs and miracles so that the first beast would be attractive, so that then through the first beast the dragon could be worshipped. And the reason I call this an unholy trinity or a counterfeit trinity is think of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father who plans, creates, plans the redemption of all those whose names have been written in the book of life before the creation of the world. He incarnates, he comes to us in his Son, to whom has been given authority to redeem people in every tongue, tribe, people, and nation the very one, the very Lord Jesus Christ, whom we're really to marvel at and through whom we're to worship the Father. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit is sent 
the witness to the Son, the one who is to glorify the Son, the one who comes and does do great signs and miracles. We read about them in the Scripture in the early church to draw attention to the authority of the Son and His work so that through the Son the Father would be worshipped. And the great work, the great miraculous powerful work of the Spirit, of course, is to change the lives of people and to draw them into the worship of the Son that they might come and love and worship the Father. And so you see, behind all of this, behind all of this, is evil and Satan himself. So it shouldn't surprise us, you see, when Satan is loosed, whenever that is, when Satan is loosed, that he doesn't there go and capture the hearts of the nations, those who have trusted in themselves to come against the people of God. These first Christians who were reading the book of Revelation would have known this well because they knew Rome. They knew in order to be an integral part of the society, they had to agree that Rome was not only king, but God. And we might think, well, it's a good thing we don't live in Rome. We, we live in America. There's not that kind of pressure at all to live in a government that isn't defining for us how we are to treat the unborn to live in a government that isn't telling us what marriage really is, to live in a government that, that certainly encourages us to be godly and to, to go to church and to worship Christ. It's not that much different. A government of the people, by the people, for the people. Don't get me wrong, I'd rather live here than anywhere else save heaven. My mom much went, once made the wonderful observation when she said, you know, people say that uh, when you wake up in the morning, that beats the alternative. That's not really true. So I'd rather live here than anywhere else safe. Heaven, that not being my choice to go there at the moment. But still, this ain't heaven. This isn't the kingdom of God the U.S. of A. It's related to the beast. It will be a nation that will come against the people of God, just like all the others. You mustn't trust it. The American dream isn't God's dream. It's not for His glory, you see. And so how then should we live? What should we really be thinking about. First, I must say that when I read this, I, I fall to my knees and the first, one of the first thoughts that come to my mind is the Bible is awesome. And it's just so amazing to me how, how we just keep reading it and reading and reading it and I, I circle stuff in the Old Testament and I go, wonder what's up with this? And I get to the New Testament and I go, that's what's up with this. Whether it be the sacrifices or whether it be the food laws or no matter what it would be about cleanliness and purity, whatever it would be about political structures, whatever it would be about great battles and final scenes, it unwinds and it says, catch a glimpse of this. It all comes to fruition. It all comes to completion. But not only that, you see, I realize that it's God who's sovereign, that while there is this unholy trinity, there is this holy trinity, and nothing will stop him. Thus, I don't need to be afraid. We can have 
have the confidence that God will glorify himself. That's our comfort. That's our hope. That's upon which we, we grab a hold of God will be glorified. Nothing will thwart him. And because we know him, that's good that he will be glorified. It's, 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 it's frightening that God will be glorified if you're an unbeliever. Because the way that God will be glorified in the context of your life is by condemnation. But for a believer, we know that when God is glorified, and though it may be terrifying at the end for those alive, still, we needn't fear. Because he said, no, no, no. When the battle takes place, if you're alive at that time, and the battle takes place, don't be afraid. Understand what's really happening. Jesus said, you know, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Don't let them get to you. Those are just precursors. That's just, that's just training. It's just to let you know that this isn't heaven. It's just to get you to know that, that, that there is evil there. And, and these are just little glimpses of, 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 of what's really underneath all of this. And it would even be worse if the restraining hand of God wasn't at this time upon us. But when that restraint is given and the evil one is loosed to deceive the nations in this way, then it will be terrifying and terrible. But, but still... Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Because God will glorify himself. And so he says, endure, persevere, live in purity. And then he says, knowing that there is this spiritual battle, he, he reminds us, as you know, in Ephesians in chapter 6, that we're to wear this great, this great spiritual, this great spiritual armor. He tells us to put on the belt of truth. That is, you've got to know the word of God. The way that you put on the belt of truth is to study the scripture. You don't hope and wish that you know it, but you, you put your nose into the scripture, you get in a Bible study, you, you begin to grow and to learn what is really truth, and you put that on so that Satan can't deceive you, so that when things start to happen like this, and when difficulties come, you don't cash out thinking God isn't there anymore. You, you trust in him, you see. You know the truth about what's really going on. He says that we're to put on this breastplate of righteousness. So around our hearts, we have to realize that we're trusting not in our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. Because Satan will come to us all the time and say, how can you claim to be a Christian when you live like that? And we become down on ourselves. And then, but, but then we have to break through all that. And say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not trusting in my righteousness. I'm trusting in the righteousness of Christ. And so we need to have the breastplate of righteousness. He says that we need to have our, our, on our feet the gospel of peace. We know what brings us peace. We know what makes us swift walkers. We know what gets us away from evil. And as the very gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him, trusting in the power of the gospel, he says, then we're to take the shield of faith which will extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. We must trust in Christ and Christ alone, else Satan will eat our lunch. And then he, takes, then he says, uh, take the helmet of salvation we must have upon our minds, upon our heads, all the time that we're saved because of Christ, and we belong to him. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, again, to know the word of God, to do battle with the evil one. And because when Satan comes, he always says, did God really say, And then pray at all times, at every occasion, all kinds of ways. To pray by the unction of the Holy Spirit of God who lives in us. The very one who attracts us to Jesus. The very one who changes our hearts. The very one that causes us to know Christ that we may worship the Father. Just pray at all times. 
Peter says, knowing all that we know, how then ought we to live? We ought to live lives that are holy and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid. All they can do is kill you. But Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can kill you. He can take your body. Be afraid of the one who can cast your soul into hell. And if you belong to Christ, none of these forces, whoever they are, whenever they come, can hurt us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your wonderful grace and your great power that shields us. So we pray that we would always trust, always stand, and always persevere. And all because of the Spirit of God who is in us, who has drawn us to Christ our Savior, who leads us right into your throne of grace. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you of our Sunday school classes. Coming up in about eight minutes, so don't be late. In response, I remind you of dinner theater too. Make sure you bless our kids. So sign up for that. The response to the benediction is praise be to God. Amen. Now, a sermon like that could scare some people. And I hope if you're scared, you're scared into the kingdom. So come to Christ. But for those of us who know Christ, we should say praise be to God. Now, I snuck that in there. It really, you could just say hallelujah, but, because that's what praise, that's what hallelujah means. But let's just spell it out today. Praise be to God. Amen. Please receive this as God's benediction, not to him. Who is able to keep you from falling to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, praise be to God. Amen.